0: Jeremiah 41, I mentioned last week that uh, chapters 40 through 45 are, are very much connected in, in thought. Uh, these are passages that are uh, connected to the aftermath of Babylon's Siege upon Jerusalem and eventual destruction and uh, capture of the city, as well as taking the, the people captive to Babylon. We dealt a little bit with that last week. Let's take a moment uh, right now to pray and ask God's blessing on our time in his word And we'll also pray for uh, the Aguilar family. Father, we come before your presence this evening thankful for the privilege and the opportunity, Lord, to open your word tonight to be able to hear, Lord God, what you are speaking to our hearts. Even as we go through the Bible, as we go through every book and every chapter, our desire, Lord God, is to take what we are given and to learn from it and grow from it, Lord. Because your word is so precious and uh, it is so unique in that way. That no matter where we are in your word, you can speak to us. And so I pray, Father, that we will be ready listeners and hearers of your word. That we'll be attentive, Lord, to the things that you have to say to us through your word. I pray, Father, this evening for the Aguilar family that uh, has suffered uh, physically the loss of their father, uh, Moises. But tonight, as well, know in their hearts and are at peace in their hearts, Lord, that Moises is now with you, that uh, he is uh, certainly in your presence. And we are indeed grateful and thankful for that. But we pray, Father, for the family in times like this, Lord, we, we can say we rejoice in our hearts, but Lord, we, we all will feel some sense of loss and pain at, uh, at the death of someone. And so we, we ask for, the, for that comfort to come upon this family, for those who are certainly mourning his loss today, and yet rejoicing at the same time because of the life that was lived for his Savior and his Lord. We ask, Father, pour out your Spirit upon us tonight. Grant us your wisdom. Grant us your understanding. May we, Lord God, listen carefully to all that you have for us in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Have you ever considered some of the, um, the warning labels that are found on appliances and other common things that are sold in stores and have been sold in stores over the years? Uh, Some of them, of course, are necessary, but uh, some of them are absolutely ridiculous. Uh, For example, uh, this one warning was found on a blanket from Taiwan. And the warning was not to be used as protection from a tornado. A blanket, okay? You get the idea, you get the picture. Uh, here was one on a, found on a helmet mirror. You know, there's, uh, motorcycle helmets sometimes have little mirrors on the side. Well, this uh, helmet mirror uh, that, that is used actually by U.S. cyclists, so this wasn't someplace else. But the, but the warning on the mirror said, remember, objects in the mirror are actually behind you. So, got to remember that, okay? When you have mirrors, whatever you see in the mirror is behind you. Uh, then of course there's the Sears hair dryer that says "Do not use while sleeping." Anybody ever dry their hair while you're asleep? I don't think you can, unless you just have to. Um, and then and here's a hair dryer from uh, from overseas: "Do not use in shower." No, nobody does that here. You guys act like you mean you, you don't know that. OK, here's 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 my favorite one. It was found on a Korean kitchen knife, a Korean kitchen knife. It says, warning, keep out of children. <laughs> so, you know, don't stick it in your children, keep it out of your children. Oh, boy. Anybody know what tiramisu is? It's a uh, Italian dessert. Well, on a tiramisu dessert box. Printed on the bottom of the box, it says, do not turn upside down. How are you going to know that? You're going to turn it upside down and then you read the thing and it's over with. You can't have dessert anymore. Or how about the one on a cardboard windshield sunscreen? You know those things that you put out on your, uh, on your uh, windshields inside on a hot summer day? It says, do not drive with sunshield in place. <laughs> just, just to make sure. I I don't understand this one. On a toner cartridge uh, for a laser printer, it says, Do not eat toner. I guess if you like toner, you could try it. Uh, Here's one. On a toilet bowl cleaning brush. Do not use orally. And then lastly, because there are a thousand more, but... In, there's a manual for a chainsaw, and in it it says, Do not attempt to stop the blade with your hand. So just, just to keep your fingers on and your hands on, don't try to stop a chainsaw with your hand. Ridiculous, isn't it? Now the person who posted these humorous warning labels also added some social commentary to these things. And he wrote this, and I think it's, it's, it's wise to listen. He said, "I think these warning labels reflect two troublesome trends in America: a steady change toward intellectual banality, which means dullness. In other words, we got nothing else to do, so we're going to make, you know, go around looking for these things." He says, uh, "The two troublesome trends in America: a steady change toward intellectual banality, and an increasing tendency to sue others for our own stupidity." I thought that was pretty insightful. But this commentary might not have uh, much to do with our passage tonight, but, but it does suggest that it isn't so humorous when real warnings are ignored or even brushed off as unnecessary or irrelevant. When we were last in Jeremiah, we were dealing with the aftermath of the Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem and the captivity and the exile of the Judean refugees and its effects on the remnant that was left behind in Judea. In particular, on the person named Gedaliah. Gedaliah we met last time as the person who was made governor by Nebuchadnezzar over the cities of Judah. Now, this Gedaliah had been warned. He had been given a warning. Not like those warnings we had just read. But he had been given a warning by a captain named Johanan, or Yohanan, that his life was in danger by a would-be assassin linked politically with the Ammonites. Now remember, there were a lot of nations that were really politically against the Babylonians, of course. They were politically, militarily, and, and otherwise uh, against the Babylonians. So a lot of political intrigue was involved. We talked about it a little bit last week. But this Yohanan, who had actually been some kind of a of a leader of a, of an army that was outside of Jerusalem, that was uh, fighting with the Babylonians, you know, they, they seemed to have... Uh, Escaped uh, the Babylonians and came in to Mizpah, where uh, Gedaliah had been set up as the governor. And uh, anyway, this this Johanan uh, 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 even offered to Gedaliah. He said, "Let me go kill this guy, and I'll do it in such a way that nobody's going to know it, just so you can get out of your hair. I know he wants to kill you." And uh, by the way, this person's name is Ishmael. Now. Ishmael really is a a, a Hebrew name, uh, and uh, but this Ishmael, not the same Ishmael from the Book of Genesis, but uh, nonetheless this Ishmael, uh, who was a member of Judah's royal family, which connects him to David. Uh, Johanan says this Ishmael wants to kill you, but and I'll go kill him for you. And 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 Gedaliah tells Johanan. I don't believe you, so don't do that. that was now the warning came from Johanan to Gedaliah. This guy wants to kill you. The guy says, "No, I don't believe it. Forget it. Don't even think about it." Now, why why Gedaliah refused any help, why he didn't believe Johanan, we don't know. Some wonder why God didn't speak to Jeremiah so he could warn Gedaliah. But don't miss the point here. God was speaking to Gedaliah through Johanan. He just refused to believe it. We must be wise and discerning of the things that we do and respond to the things that God has shown us. You know, so often we are going to be told a lot of news. Some news is good news, but a lot of bad news will come with warning. The warnings that we are receiving as believers in Jesus Christ will ultimately come out of God's Word. Because God's Word is making us look at the days and times in which we live and we're realizing that we're living in the last days and therefore if the Word of God warns us about something, we ought to take heed to it. We ought to take heed to the fact that the Bible tells us that in the last days we need to be living for Christ. We need to take heed in these last days that as Jesus is coming soon, we need to live lives that are exemplary lives before the world. Lives that reflect the love of Christ, lives that reflect the truth of, of God and the truth of Jesus. So those are the kinds of warnings that we need to be aware of and that we need to be responding to. As we see the day of Christ approaching. Well, last week I had mentioned about Gedaliah, and there was some good news about the fact that uh, there were uh, those who had uh, had come in, in, in support uh, of. What uh, Nebuchadnezzar had set up there for the people to have uh, as far as uh, own land and property and whatnot. But we didn't talk much about the bad news. The bad news begins here in verse 1 of chapter 41. Because it says now it came to pass in the seventh month that Ishmael the son of Netanyahu the son of Elishama, of the royal family and of the officers of the king came with ten men to Gedaliah the son of Ahikam at Mizpah. And there they ate bread together in Mizpah. Please take note of that, that they came and they ate bread together. And then in verse 2 it says, And Ishmael the son of Netanyahu and the ten men who were with him arose and struck Gedaliah the son of Ahikam the son of Shaphan with the sword and killed him whom the king of Babylon had made governor over the land. Ishmael also struck down all the Jews who were with him, that is, with Gedaliah at Mizpah, and the Chaldeans who were found there, the men of war. Boy, things turned sour fast, didn't it? And just to show you the evil behind the assassination of Gedaliah, it is important to note that in the Near East, when people eat together, and that's why I wanted you to take note of that, that when people eat together, especially in the Middle East or in the Near East, that is usually a sign or a pledge of friendship and loyalty to one another. Somehow, that didn't kind of reach the Western world as, as, be, as, as, as well as it should have. Because we'll eat with anybody. But there, you know, even if we eat with people we don't like... You know, we'll always have to contend with heartburn. And see, in those days, you didn't do that. You, you know, if you didn't like something, you didn't eat with them. For that very reason. Because you would be so angry inside and the and the physical juices flowing inside of you that make you angry and whatnot. You know, you just didn't enjoy your meal. And meals were meant to be enjoyed by everyone. Hands dipping into the same bowls and reaching in with with bread and stuff, you were to you really need to like people, you know. You needed to like the people you were eating with. So this this is this is what it was for them. Now remember, Gedaliah had been warned about this Ishmael. Ishmael comes with ten men. They come to eat bread. They come to break bread together. They sit down. What does that do? It, you put down your defenses. You say we're here as friends. We know each other. We're to be loyal to each other. So there was trust in this meeting because the parties were going to sit down around the table of fellowship and of friendship and of partnership. And that's the reason why Gedaliah had let his guard down. He was so naive that he would not believe what Johanan had told him about Ishmael and his plot to kill him. And whatever the offer made to him by the Ammonites... It certainly had caused Ishmael to betray all of his loyalties to his own people. Now there is another view that might, uh, might arise here. Uh, and and I'm, I'm one that believes that the Ammonites were the ones who, who, who actually made Ishmael the mercenary. Probably paid him for, for this because of all of that political wrangling that was going on. That you know, if the Ammonites could cause a problem in Judea, then the, the Babylonians would stay in Judea and not uh, go and attack uh, Ammon. But there's another thought that actually Ishmael, being who he was as a, as a royal member of, the, uh, of David's family, as it were, was one who probably gave something in tribute to the Ammonite king to say, let me go do this, and you'll see why that might be possible in just a moment. Well, let's tell you now. Add the fact that Ishmael, being a descendant of the Davidic line, may have felt that he should have been in charge instead of Gedaliah. That happens a lot, doesn't it? In familial uh, political areas. Uh, So jealousy then, envy, probably played a part in the assassination plot, which also brings to mind the issue of covetousness. Think about these things, jealousy, envy, covetousness. We have to have some idea, you know, what does it mean to covet? You want something that doesn't belong to you. Envy and jealousy kind of play along those same lines. We're envious of what others may have. We're jealous that we don't have what others may have. So it becomes a very selfish, selfish issue in the heart. That's why covetousness is one of the uh, things that is dealt with in a couple of the commandments in the Ten Commandments. Not to mention the, uh, the, the devious alliance with God's enemies. You know, what is Ishmael doing with the Ammonites? What's he doing with these guys? I mean, these these guys have been enemies of Israel for hundreds of years. So everything about Ishmael disgraced the name of his beforebearer, which is David. Everything that Ishmael did, he disgraced the name of David, who had himself resisted every impulse Listen carefully. Every impulse to do something similar to what Ishmael did. And yet, David awaited God's timing rather than take the initiative on his own. Think about it for a moment. King Saul, who had become very jealous of David. David was getting all the attention... David's getting all the attention from the people. They were even writing songs about David that were making Saul even more angry. Saul has slain his thousands. David is ten thousands. And when David and Abishai, after Saul showed his his desire then to, to get rid of David and to kill him, When David and Abishai had every opportunity to strike Saul while he was sleeping the wilderness as if. We read in 1 Samuel 26, verse 9 and following, it says, David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, speaking of Saul, do not destroy him. For who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, Furthermore, as the Lord lives... The Lord shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. David wasn't trying to be prophetic here. He was just saying, look, you've got to leave Saul in God's hands. It's not up to our hands to deal with him, because he is the Lord's anointed. He is the King of Israel. Verse 11, the Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but please... Take now the spear and jug of water that are by his head and let us go. He says, just go. We're going to take these things and we're going to show him how close we got. We're going to show him how close, how, how it could have been if we had taken the initiative. But we won't. So think about this for just a moment. Ponder this thought because it's an interesting thought. That Saul, who knew that David was God's choice, see, Saul knew that. Saul knew that David was God's choice, still pursued him to kill him. But David, knowing that Saul was the anointed king, spared his life. What a contrast. What a distinction. Saul, knowing that David was God's choice, nonetheless wanted to kill him. And David, respecting, respecting. There's a word we need to hear more often in our, t- in our time in society today. Respect. David respected Saul as king and spared his life. And you know, there's times when David will say to Saul, even later on, how he loved Saul didn't want things to be the way they were. But Saul's heart had become hard and and envious, jealous, covetous of David's glory and fame. Yet he was the king. He had everything. And he lost it all. Now I have to tell you that Ishmael... In our story here in Jeremiah, Ishmael was no David, not even close. Ishmael was as foolish as he was treacherous. And I want to bring this point out because too many people who do evil things when they should know better are showing how foolish they are by continuing on in their evil. You see, Ishmael was as foolish as he was treacherous by believing that a regime that was devised in deception, imposed by violence, backed by the ill-wishing Ammonites, and in violation of God's law anyway, could have any hope of survival. How could he hope that everything that he did, which was wrong, 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 was ever going to survive? eventually God was going to catch up with him. Eventually the consequences for what he did was going to be heavy upon his life. Now why are people so foolish to do things they know are going to lead to those kind of consequences? Now people might say, well, you know, Ishmael probably thought, well, now that he's in control, he has the ties with Ammonites, so they'll, they'll leave him alone, and, 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 uh, and so on and so forth, but... It not only revealed an evil heart, a wicked heart, a treacherous heart, it reveals that aftermath of the fall. We talked a little bit about that last week. What happens when the nation falls? No one has turned to the Lord. No one is seeking the Lord. We're going to meet some people that actually are wanting to seek the Lord here in just a minute. But then Ishmael gets to them too. God's Word makes makes it real clear to us, even today, how foolish people can become. Because of their envy, because of their jealousy, because of their covetousness. Take for instance what Job says in Job chapter 5 verse 2. Simple little statement. For wrath kills a foolish man and envy slays a simple one. Wrath kills a foolish man and envy slays a simple one. Proverbs 14 verse 30. A sound heart is life to the body but envy is rottenness to the bones. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says in verses 18 to 32. Now just think about this. When you read this, when you listen to it, try to picture this person, Ishmael. Because here it says that even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. To do those things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness. Sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, there's covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, there's envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil mindedness. They are whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Who knowing the righteous judgment of God. Now there's the key. Who knowing the righteous judgment of God. That those who practice such things are deserving of death. Not only do the same but also approve of those who practice them. I think that's a tremendous description. Not only of the people that Paul was talking about in the book of Romans. But I think it's a good description of Ishmael. Because everything that he shows in his wickedness is mentioned here. Later on in Romans 13, verses 12-14, through Paul says, The night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Now, this is where I believe it really connects with us today. Why? Because the night is indeed far spent, the day of Christ is at hand, and therefore we need to cast off the works of darkness, and we need to put on the armor of light. And then it says, let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust. Now notice, not in strife and envy. Strife and envy will kill you. And that is what the enemy means to do with anybody that he can get you to do those things or to have those attitudes or to have those kinds of works in your life strife and envy instead paul says let us put on the lord jesus christ but put on the lord jesus christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust do not give the flesh the opportunity to, pu- to fulfill those lusts envy is a lust Strife, in a sense, is a lust. What are you striving for? What was Ishmael striving for if he really wanted to be of the leader of everybody? Even Gedaliah didn't, didn't campaign for the post of governor. It was given to him by Nebuchadnezzar. He actually did a pretty good job for the short time that he was the governor took the people. He told them what Jeremiah had said. If you just stay here, you'll be safe. If you follow what the Chaldeans want you to do, that the Babylonians want you to do, you'll be safe. You'll be okay. And they grew vineyards. And they took care of of the land. And they grew food so that the Chaldeans as well as the poor people could eat. The poor and the old were able to become landowners finally. Gadaliah did, you know, he, he just kind of fell into this, but you know what? God put him there. But then this happens. Because of the strife, the envy, the lusts that were desiring to be fulfilled in this Ishmael. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 3, Paul says for you are still carnal for where there are envy strife and divisions among you you're not uh, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men i think that is a tremendously insightful statement that paul makes because he first of all says where there are envy strife and divisions among you now who's he speaking about he's speaking to the church isn't he he's speaking to the church in corinth So he's not just speaking to people out in the street. He's not speaking to unbelievers. He's speaking to believers. And he says, if you have envy, strife, and divisions among you, aren't you carnal and behaving like mere men? Do you know that little statement Paul is saying? We in the church are not to behave like mere men. We're to be better than that. We're to live better than that because of Jesus Christ, because of the power of the Holy Spirit, because of the indwelling Spirit of Christ in us. We're to live better than that. We don't want to be like mere men. Become copies of evil in this world. We're better than that. In Titus, Paul says in in chapter 3, verse 3 and following, For we ourselves were once also foolish. We once were this way. We were foolish before we came to Christ. And he's not talking, he's not pointing fingers, he's looking at himself. Please remember, when you point your finger at somebody, you've got three pointing back at you. See? Point your finger, you got three pointing at yourself. Paul says, we ourselves, and by the way, he says we, not you. He says, we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures living in malice and, notice, envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You know, when I I say that we're not to be mere men, realize this. We're not to be arrogant either. We're humbled by what Jesus Christ has done for us. At least we should be. We are humbled by His death. We are humbled by His resurrection. We're humbled by His life. We're humbled by by His continual intercession for us. We're humbled by His presence with us. We're humbled by His pouring out His Holy Spirit upon us as members of the body of Christ. We are humbled by everything that Jesus does. But the very fact that He has humbled us in these things doesn't take away the fact that He has justified us by His grace that we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We do not boast in our salvation and we do not boast in our eternal life in Christ because of anything we've done. We boast in it because of what Christ has done and has completed for us. Amen? right. Then the issue of covetousness. That was dealing with just envy and, and usually envy and jealousy are kind of always linked together. But Psalm 119 verse 36. Listen to what it says about covetousness. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Incline my heart. Lean my heart upon your testimonies. Incline my heart upon your testimonies and not to covetousness. Lord, I don't want to covet. I don't want to be a person who covets what everybody else has. Hebrews 13.5. I know we're jumping way over but Hebrews 13.5 says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For He Himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I tell you what, that's a beautiful statement. We we read it a lot in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Joshua. Uh, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And I think, you know, when, when the Lord says that to us, do you, do you happen to recognize the fact that He's telling us that you know if we have Jesus only jesus in our life if we didn't have everything every material thing that we have today we can give thanks to god for those things yes but even if we didn't have one of those things if we had jesus we have everything we need can you can you can you just fathom that thought for just a moment that's exactly what paul's saying here he says let your conduct be without covetousness without wanting to you know everything that everybody else has be content with such things as you have for he himself has said i'll never leave you nor forsake you so if you got jesus you got everything you need whatever else you have above that that's just things that maybe you've wanted or maybe the they are things that you need but god has provided them for you anyway but if you have him and you don't have anything else in the world used to have more than some people have even when they have thousands of things in their lives to have jesus is better than having all the riches in this world. To have Jesus is better than having all of the things that you could amass. One of my favorite movies is the old movie called Citizen Kane. And um, the main character, Charles Foster Kane, was kind of uh, uh, portraying the life of William Randolph Hearst who has uh, the Hearst uh, castle I guess it's up in California you can still go visit it today but, uh, but this, this, this person you know started with nothing you know it was one of those uh, stories of you know getting your fortune and then once you get it you just don't know what to do with your money so you just start buying everything that you can possibly buy and of course, in the movie *Citizen Kane*, it it, uh, it just shows how uh, Charles Foster Kane buys everything. He gets statues and all kinds, of, just all kinds of things that uh, he would fill up warehouses full of stuff because he had the uh, the power to do it. And in the end, when he dies, he takes nothing with him. The real moral of the story. He leaves this life with one word on his lips. Rosebud. And everybody, you know, this one... The whole story is about one uh, reporter trying to find out what did that one word mean. Rosebud. Nobody knew. Rosebud was his little sled that he had when he was a kid growing up in Colorado, I think. Whatever it was. But, you know, the point of the matter is this. All he could remember was what he could never be again, was was a child and enjoy the life of a child. Wasted it all. Couldn't have a good relationship with anyone because he had to be in charge of everything. People live to amass fortunes and die going wherever they go with nothing. As you come into this world, so you shall leave. Peter writes in Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1-3, through 3, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. But notice verse 3, By covetousness, by covetousness, They will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. In other words, those who covet will eventually get their just deserts. Well, with all of that in mind, now getting back to Ishmael. Not only did Ishmael assassinate Gedaliah, who had been warned that it was going to happen. But Ishmael and his men also murdered the Jewish officials of the new government that accompanied Gedaliah. So whoever there was was with Gedaliah also got killed by these ten men. So they must have acted swiftly. And then, along with some of the Babylonian regiment, left behind to maintain order to possibly guard the governor. They got killed in all of this. (coughs) Excuse me. So, this was a bloodbath. And we're going to learn that uh, Ishmael, his, his, his real heart now comes to the foreground. He was a bloodthirsty man. To all of his other sins, we can start adding things like hypocrisy and greed to his bloodthirsty attitude. Look at verses 4 through 9. And it happened on the second day after he had killed Gedaliah when as yet no one knew it that certain men came from Shechem from Shiloh and from Samaria that's from the northern part of Israel uh, 80 men with their beard shaved and their clothes torn having cut themselves by the way that was not legal that was not in the law that they should cut themselves so this this was this was grief way beyond the law. And then they came with offerings and incense in their hand to bring them to the house of the Lord. Now, Ishmael, (laughs) the son of Netaniah, went out from Mizpah to meet them. Mizpah is where he killed Gedaliah. And then it says weeping as he went along. Why was he weeping? He wasn't weeping because, oh man, I just killed this guy. No, He was probably rejoicing in that. He was weeping as a cover because these men coming down from from the north in effect were coming up to, to Jerusalem they were coming to offer sacrifice in the temple and even though babylon had already conquered and in all they still wanted to come it happened as he met them that he said to them come to get eliah the son of ahikam he says, come, I'll, I'll introduce you to the governor of the land. So it was when they came into the midst of the city that Ishmael, the son of Netanyahu, killed them and cast him into the midst of a pit, which is probably another large, large cistern. Cast him into the midst of a pit, he and the men who were with him. But ten men were found among them who said to Ishmael, do not kill us, for we have treasures of wheat, barley, oil, and honey in the field. So ten men survived this onslaught So he killed 70 men. The 10 men said, look, don't kill us. We we know where there's a lot of good stuff for you. Treasures. I mean, this was like money in those days. So we'll give you wheat, barley, oil, and honey. So he he desisted and did not kill them among their brethren. Now, the pit into which Ishmael had cast all the dead bodies of the men whom he had slain, because of Gedaliah, was the same one Azza the king had made for fear of Basha the king of Israel. That was at a time when the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom were at war against each other. Civil war or uncivil war as you see it. Ishmael the son of Netanyahu filled it with the slain, being the the sister. Obviously human life was cheap to Ishmael. For what turns out to be for his own benefit... Ishmael misleads a group of pilgrims from the north of Israel who were bringing these offerings and incense to offer in the temple in Jerusalem, acting the part of one in mourning and sharing their grief. And inviting the traveling pilgrims to meet with Gedaliah, who of course was already dead. But all of this was done to trap them. And as he led them to the governor's headquarters in the city, he lured them into the trap that he and his men had set. And without mercy, please understand, without mercy, Ishmael and his men slaughtered 70 of the pilgrims and threw their corpses into a sister. Now you might ask the question, why did he kill them? They were were coming mourning. You know why he killed them? For two reasons. One, because he just liked to kill people. He was bloodthirsty. But, on the other hand, he also killed them because they had things that have value to them. He figured, we'll just kill them, we'll take what they've got. So not only was he a murderer, but he was a thief. And disposes the bodies in this cistern. Ten of the pilgrims were able to save their lives by appealing to Ishmael's greedy heart, <laughs> informing him that they had hidden a large amount of food in a field, probably in, a, in another cistern. They offered to reveal the location of the supplies in exchange for their lives, so so he let them go instead of killing them. Nevertheless, Ishmael's bloodthirsty heart is exposed in the assassination of Gedaliah and the vicious slaughter of these 70 pilgrims, who corpses he had thrown into this cistern now by the way king Azza had built this particular cistern he was a good king by the way actually he was a good king who later in his life was one who turned his back on god and suffered the consequences for it but he was still a good king which tells you you know we can be good and and then you know we, we just need to be careful about our lives but King Aza, you know, built this, this cistern as part of a water supply of Mizpah when he was fortifying the city against King Basha of Israel. You can read about that in 1 Kings 15 or 2 Chronicles 6 or 16, I should say. So good King Azaz had made the cistern to preserve life. Apparently Ishmael needed these supplies, and so he allowed these ten men to live, at least until he had confiscated their food. But as Azam had made this cistern one to preserve life, Ishmael used it to uh, uh, contaminate with death. So again, a revealing of the heart of Ishmael. And then in verse 10 of our text, it says, And Ishmael carried away captive all the rest of the people <coughs> who were in Mizpah, the king's daughters and all the people who remained in Mizpah, whom Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had committed to get a the son of Ahikam, and Ishmael, the son of Netaniah, carried them away captive and departed to go over to the Ammonites. Now Ishmael climaxed this uh, his insidious, sinister crimes by kidnapping the helpless Jewish remnant and heading toward the land of the Ammonites. Now remember that Mizpah was one of those stage places, you know, places where they staged the uh, captivity uh, and exile to Babylon. And uh, now he's taking these refugees who are living in Mizpah, and he's getting ready to take them captive, but in essence to take them to the Ammonites in a different uh, direction. And uh, so, who's he taking with him? Even the daughters of the king, which was Zedekiah, the last king of of Judah. But the outcome of Ishmael's adventure was miserable, and it was humiliating, as we see in the next passage, verses 11-15. through But when Johanan the son of Kareah and all the the, the captains of the forces that were with him heard of all the evil that Ishmael the son of Netaniah had done, they took all the men and went to fight with Ishmael the son of Netaniah, and they found him by the great pool that is in Gibeon. So it was, when all the people who were with Ishmael saw Johanan the son of Kareah and all the captains of the forces who were with him, that they were glad... And then all the people whom Ishmael had carried away captive from Mizpah turned around and came back, and went to Johanan the son of Korea. But Ishmael the son of Netanyahu escaped from Johanan with eight men and went uh, to the Ammonites. You know, once Johanan and the other military leaders heard about the atrocities that were committed by Ishmael, they immediately launched this this rescue attempt. And when the kidnapped victims saw their rescuers coming, they shouted for joy and immediately they ran to join Yohanan and his forces. And during the ensuing battle, Ishmael and eight of his men escaped and fled to Ammon. And yet, his interference in the life of the community, which had begun to flourish under Gedaliah, had a decisive and a disastrous effect. Mizpah is now abandoned. And with it the policy of submission to Babylon. What was the policy? If you will just do as they say, you will live. You'll live. Well, Scripture never mentions Ishmael or King Baalis again, which is the king of Ammon that sent uh, Ishmael to kill Gedaliah. So, whatever plans the Ammonites had, whatever thoughts that Ishmael had of being some kind of a leader in Judea, all of that was wiped out. By the way, in this chapter, Yohanan serves as an example of a man who is ready to rescue. He was as ready to rescue as he was to warn. Now think about that. He was as ready to rescue as he was to warn. Some people just warn and then just kind of leave you to yourselves. But Johannan has, has, at least at this point, because later on we're going to have to struggle with some of the things he does, but, but here Johannan has that heart. Not only to tell you and to warn you, but then to rescue you and to help you. Oh, that we would be that kind of man or that kind of woman that would have that kind of heart. Not only just to warn people, but to help you do something about it. Jude, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, writing in his single chapter letter in Jude verses 20-23 through says, But you, beloved, he says, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life, and on some have compassion, making a distinction. I like what the King James says there. It says making a difference. But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. That's a tremendous statement. Again, the the King James version says, "Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life." And if some have compassion, making a difference. You know, you don't make a difference by just warning. You make a difference by warning and walking and helping and strengthening others. It's not just about dropping the bomb on them, you know, and say, oh, this is going to happen, and then walk away. But the warning is for all of us, isn't it? That's why as we hear the Word of God, we are to take it seriously. We're to take it to to heart that, you know what, these things are going to happen. You know, I'm not up here like Chicken Little. The sky is falling. The sky is falling, you know. going around just worried about everything, you know, because the sky was falling. Listen, when I tell you that Jesus is coming, what are you going to do about it? How are we going to face the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ if we don't start praying, if we don't start living as the believers that God called us to be? If we don't start giving the life of Christ uh, through our lives an example of Christ, witnessing and testifying of of the love of Christ and the, the truth of Christ. Verse 23 says, Others saved with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. Taking them right out. So it's necessary for us to realize not only the warning part of it, it's living the promise. Living the promises that God has given us so that we can warn with the results of making a difference. If it affects our lives, we can affect the lives of others. That's the whole thought. And lastly, as we get to the end of this chapter, we see how even Johanan can get his eyes off of the Lord and place them on the flesh and on the world. You know, So here was a guy that was trying to do the right thing, but then what does he do? Let's look at it. Verse 16, Then Johanan the son of Kareah and all the captains of the forces that were with him took from Mizpah all the rest of the people whom he had recovered from Ishmael the son of Netaniah after he had murdered Gedaliah the son of Ahikam. The mighty men of war and the women and the children and the eunuchs whom he had brought back from Gibeon, and they departed and, and dwelt in the land of Him, Himham, which is near Bethlehem, as they went on their way, notice where, to Egypt, because of the Chaldeans, for they were afraid of them. All right, They're going to go to Egypt, the type of the world, we'll talk about it in a moment. And then they're going, why? Because they're afraid. Rather than trusting in the Lord, they were afraid. Because Ishmael, the son of Netanyahu, had murdered Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, whom the king of Babylon had made governor in the land. So in rescuing the Jews, uh, Johanan had shown great courage. But when he was finally in charge, he revealed his own lack of faith by wanting to take the remnant of the people to Egypt. And as I said, Egypt has always been in the Scriptures a type of the world... And a type of sin. And Johanan didn't even remember the words of Gedaliah. Or the messages of Jeremiah, which I know he had had to have heard at some time in his life. Jeremiah 40 verse 9. Gedaliah the son of Ahikam the son of Shaphan took an oath before them and their men saying, Do not be afraid to serve the Chaldeans. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon and it shall be well with you. If they had just done that, they would have been okay. If they had gone back to Mizpah or someplace close by and said, okay, we'll, we'll set up shop here. We'll do what they said. We'll let the Babylonians know that this Ishmael came as, as, a, as an agent of Ammon. Of Ammon and, and we'll try to get all these things straightened back and, and everything. No, he says, Let's, we're all afraid. Let's just go to Egypt. Egypt was what? They were trying to be a, a, an ally to, to Judah as well. But what happened with that? Egypt started coming, the Babylonians went and attacked them, and they just ran back to Egypt. They weren't friends. They were as much the chickens as they always had been. And Babylon went back then, and then that's when the siege took place. So, how easy it is then for a good man to go astray, simply by turning away from the Word of God. He knew what the truth was, but he didn't act upon it. Egypt continues to serve as a false promise. A false promise to the people of Judah. A false promise because it is sin and the pleasures of the world. And as sin and the pleasures of the world do for us in this day and hour. That's what Egypt is like. What was Egypt to the children of Israel when they were there in the time of Moses? It was a time of great slavery. It was a time of great persecution. And yet, when they went out and and Moses led them into the wilderness, as they began to wonder whether they were going to eat again and drink water again and whatnot, what was their cry? We want to go back to Egypt What were they remembering about Egypt? Just the spicier part of Egypt, right? The leeks and the onions and the garlic. They had forgotten what? They had forgotten the slavery. They had forgotten the beatings. In Hebrews 11, and let's close with this. In Hebrews 11, verses 24-29. In the Hall of Faith, speaking about Moses in this particular part of his life, it says, By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather, and get verse 25, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. The King James says that he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. That's what Egypt is all about. The passing pleasures of sin for a season. And then it goes on to say, Esteeming the reproach of Christ's greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. For he endured as seeing him was invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, as the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. Each of those things that he did, he always did in contrast to Egypt. In contrast to the Egypt that wanted, you know, to, to lure them back with their treasures. The Egypt that wanted so much to, to, uh, to kill them, you know, because of the wrath that the king had, had, had desired to uh, kill them with. And he, uh, he went beyond that. In every instance, Egypt was a type of, of the world and of sin. And Moses continued to forsake all of Egypt. To look for the reward. The reward was Messiah. That was the reward because he's, he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt he looked to the reward it's easy it's easy sometimes to run to the world it's easy sometimes to, to think well you know we'll find a little bit more comfort here or a little bit more help here in the world than even in the church but that's not the case Because in the Lord, there is peace. In the Lord, there is help. In the Lord, there is comfort. In the Lord, there is everything that we need. Even in the midst of our struggles and our trials. And folks, we go through them. And we have people that go through great and heavy situations in their lives in the church. And we need to pray for people. And we need to stand fast with them because of what's going on in this world. And it pains my heart when people reject that thought and decide just to take hold of what's easy. It does take faith to trust the Lord. It does take faith to live for God. It does take faith and trust to stand on the truth. But the rewards are so much greater if we choose to do that than to follow after the things of the world. So tonight we have this contrast in the life of Ishmael, who was a bloodthirsty thief and, and envious and covetous wicked man. In contrast to a man like Johannin who Johanan, who was wanting to do the right thing and did up to a certain point. But then when it came to when it came to living on, fear captured his heart. And eventually you'll have to see the picture is if we don't trust the Lord, what are we going to trust in? There's no guarantee, you see. Jeremiah had been very clear. If you will just listen to the Babylonians, I've put you under them. See, that's the reason why he says that. If you will obey the Chaldeans, you will be okay. You will live. I've put you under them. I will make sure that you will be okay. And if we can't trust the simple thing that God says, then what can we trust? Let's look at the life of Moses for a minute. He was a servant that didn't trust in himself. He had to trust in God. And he made his mistakes in the wilderness. And he got angry at the people. And he got angry at God. But he always came back to his trust in the Lord God always knew what was best and he always knew that what God did for him was always good even when God told Moses Moses you're not going to cross over into the promised land Moses knew it was for good and John in in the first chapter of his gospel John tells us the law came through Moses Grace and truth for our Lord Jesus Christ. Moses was the one to lead us to the promised land. He was a representative of the law. The law brings us to Christ. Christ, in the form of Joshua, leads us into the promised land by what Jesus Christ has done. So, that little jaunt into egypt is another lesson for us it never goes away whether it was during moses time or jeremiah's time egypt was always a type of sin so a type of something that we need to avoid and stay away from let's pray